1: learn all about investing in real estate in charlotte north carolina with a combination of real estate financial
0: planning and modeling with numbers specific to charlotte plus syndicated more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real
1: estate investing classes not all of them specific to charlotte be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors well good morning and welcome everyone I am your host, James Orr, and this is another class on deal analysis. Today we're going to talk about a couple interesting little differences you might see when analyzing certain types of deals, and I'm going to use the example of new construction because I think you're likely to see some of these things on new construction. And one of the things is almost exclusively to new construction, but we'll, uh, we'll kind of go through that as we come up with it. So I'm going to jump right into using the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet. And uh, you can go download a copy of this at real realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. And there are some updates I've been making. Um, so you'll have to uh, download the newest version. Um, soon after I release this, I'll probably release it in a couple of days, although I do have some family coming into town, so might be taking about a week off uh, between now and the next recording, so it might be a little bit before you get the newest version, but I'll post the video and then we'll I'll do the latest updates so you can kind of see some of the changes. Okay, so let's jump right into it. So I'm, I'm going to assume that you're buying a $400,000 new construction property um, and that you're buying it for $400,000. Now, the seller concessions, the, the, the seller, the builder in this case, is unwilling to give you any seller concessions, except they're going to give you a kind of like special loan program um, like that they can get through their lender that they're going to pay for. Uh, and so it is sort of like you're getting some seller concessions. They're going to do this uh, three to one rate buy down plan where you're going to get a lower interest rate for the first year. Um, a really a much lower interest rate for the first year, a slightly lower one for the second year, a slightly one for the third year. And then by the fourth year, you're going to pay the regular normal interest rate for the next, whatever that is, 26 years remaining after that. Okay, so that's what they're doing. Now, they, they did say they would offer you, if you wanted to, um, a certain amount of money in order to buy down your interest rate permanently. And we covered that in the last class where we talked about um, the seller being willing to give you, you know, a 3% buy down, um, and you could use that to buy down the interest rate permanently. So, I don't know if I want to mix those two together, but the idea is that um, you could do one of those where you buy down the interest rate permanently, or you could do this three, two, one buy down and get significantly better cash flow the first year a little bit worse cash flow the second year, a little bit worse cash flow the third year, and then by the fourth year, you're at what the regular interest rate is for the loan for the term of it. So maybe I will do a direct comparison class. I'm not sure if I'm going to cover that in this class or not, so we'll go there. So basically, let's assume also that you're going to be doing this as a nomad. We're going to, we're going to start with 20% down just so we can see it, and then we'll switch over to what it looks like when you put 5% down. Uh, your share of the closing cost is going to be 1%. And because it's new construction, this is one of the things that's interesting and different, Uh, because it's new construction, you might think to yourself, hey, there's really nothing for me to do because I'm buying a brand new property. And you would probably be mistaken. Um, The thought process is that when you buy new construction, sometimes there's things that you normally get with a resale property that you don't get with new construction. For example, in some properties, it includes, um, you know, some resale properties, it includes window blinds throughout the house you know, the the last person to sell it is just including those on there. However, when you buy new construction, sometimes the builder is only putting in some window blinds, like maybe the front of the house. Sometimes they're not putting in any window blinds at all. And so you've got to have some money set aside for things like that, that you have coming into the property. In addition to that, a lot of times when we buy new construction, not everything is done. So for example, here where I live, it's very, very common for a builder to actually provide the front yard landscaping but not to include the backyard landscaping so you need to either have the builder pay the builder extra in order to include the backyard landscaping or do that yourself afterward so we could do one of two things here either we can kind of like raise the price that we're paying to the builder and so instead of doing a purchase price for 400 maybe when we include you know, the upgraded appliance package go from like the standard stuff to the stainless steel and including the refrigerator um, to including an air, an air conditioning unit, because that's optional with a lot of builders around here, uh, to including backyard landscaping, to sometimes including backyard fencing, um, to including sometimes they do include garage door openers, sometimes they do not. So when you add in all of these extra things, sometimes it's as much as $30,000 more. So instead of purchasing the property for four hundred, dollars now maybe we're purchasing the property for four hundred and thirty. dollars And still we've got some things that we cannot roll into the builder. Like some builders will not allow you to roll in uh, the blinds on a property. And so you'll have to pay for those out of pocket. And so you should budget something, whatever you think it'll cost you to do those things as additional rent ready costs, okay? So we've raised the price in order to include those extra things. Now, a really important note here. That note is some of the things that we often want to roll into the cost of buying a new construction property, an appraiser is going to give us little or no value for. So there is a chance, especially as you add more and more things to the price of the property, that the property will not appraise. And if the property does not appraise, that means that you will need to be bringing more than just your regular down payment to purchase the property. So for example, you'll notice the amount for down payments is $86,000 here, it's 20% of that. However, what can happen is um, when we do the ARV, let's say the ARV only comes in at 410. um, That means that we need to then bring more to the table. I'm sorry, we're purchasing it for 430 and we're um, doing 410. So yeah, so the 20% should be based on the um, purchase price, not the ARV. So yeah, so basically we're gonna do that and then we'll need to bring additional money to the table in order to cover that additional shortage. So just be aware. Like for example, I bought a property a new construction property where I had the builder finish the basement. It was actually much cheaper for me to have the builder finish the basement and better because I could finance it at, you know, three and a half percent or something like that in order to have the builder do that. However, when we went to have the property appraised, the appraiser did not see the extra value in what the appraised amount was. Uh, on the property and so that they were unwilling to give us the new, the additional cost of finishing the basement in the appraised value. And we ended up needing to come to the table with additional money in order to cover the difference between what the property appraised for um, and what the uh, cost of the property was in addition to our down payment, okay? So just be aware that that is the case. I'm gonna make a note here to update something in the spreadsheet. So it'll be fixed by the time you get it. Okay, cool. So uh rent-ready cost, you can see that there. Uh, And then we calculate the cumulative negative cash flow in this particular case. I'm going to adjust the monthly rent up to about what it would be. We're going to call this one $2,800 a month. So we have a little bit of negative cash flow with the property here uh, because that's just what the numbers are. So it's $162 a month negative cash flow based on what we're seeing here. Oh, and because we're putting 20% down, the rate's really closer to 7%. So it's really $191 a month of negative cash flow here uh, based on what we're seeing now before we do any adjustments. Okay? so. Uh, we see the rent ready costs. We see the cumulative negative cash flow there. Uh, if you want to cover like what we talked about there, go watch the previous class. I walk you through a bunch of what's going on with the cumulative negative cash flow. The short version of this is: when you buy a property, you should have enough money for the down payment, plus enough money for the closing costs, plus enough money for any rent ready costs that you need, plus enough money for your reserves, and in addition to all of that, if you have negative cash flow on a property. It is prudent. It is more conservative for you to say, look, my, my negative cash flow for the for the life of this property, with rents going up a little bit each year, my expenses going up a little bit each year, my payment on my property is probably going to be fixed. I'm likely to have negative cash flow for a number of years before rents creep up enough where I no longer have negative cash flow. The the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet actually will do that calculation for you. If you go into the overrides, you can see where it does that. It is right here with the cumulative negative cash flow. So it calculates how much negative cash flow you have each year. And then it adds up what the total amount of cumulative negative cash flow you have on the property for that time period. And then it shows you here on this homepage as you will also need this in order to make your investment in the property. So when you think about how much you need to do the deal, it's not just down payment. It's not just down payment and closing costs. It's not just down payment, closing costs and rent ready costs, the things that you need to get the property ready to rent. It's not just all those things plus reserves. It's all those things plus now cumulative negative cash flow because it is prudent for you. If you know negative cash flow is coming, it is prudent for you to set that money aside as part of your initial investment when you are going to buy the property. Okay. If you don't have negative cash flow, it'll be zero and you won't have to worry about it. However, if you're in a market where you're choosing to put less than Um, a certain amount of down where you wouldn't have negative cash flow, right? Because if you put more down here, you put 30% down, it's not negative anymore, right? So negative cash flow really is a function of how much you put down. It is deferred down payment. If you put more down, you wouldn't have it. But if you put less down, you're choosing to pay out the down payment over time until you no longer have negative cash flow. And so that's how you should think about it. If you're in a market where you, if you put a certain amount down, you're likely to have negative cash flow, and you're choosing to put that amount down, you're choosing to have negative cash flow. Now, of course, you know this goes. This is in addition to obviously try to select a deal where you don't have negative cash flow, optimize for picking the right deal. But if you're in a market and you're trying to do a strategy where you know this is the strategy because you put this amount down and these are this is the best property you can find in your marketplace in our current market conditions you have a choice. You can either not make the investment, continue to save money until you have more to put down, or you could choose to put this amount down and have the negative cash flow. And then you got to evaluate whether that makes sense for you by looking at the overall deal and making that analysis. All right. So, so this shows you that, uh, numbers we did there put it back to 20%. That's good. So the mortgage interest rate, if you're doing a non-owner occupant, we're calling it 7% right now. And you can see what that looks like. If we go to a Owner-occupant loan, we're going to lower that the tiniest bit, um, and we're going to add PMI in here. So uh, we do have PMI added in right now. So this is really zero um, when we're doing the initial analysis because we don't have PMI because we put 20% down right now. And so negative cash flow is 191 a month. Monthly rent on the property is uh, $2,800 a month. Uh, the vacancy rate, we're saying the vacancy rate for a brand-new construction property is going to be about 3%. That's because we're starting usually 60 to 90 days ahead of time when we are trying to fill the vacancy. Property taxes are based on whatever the property taxes are in your marketplace. In this case, we're using 0.56% to estimate that. Uh, Property insurance on a $430,000 property, probably in the 1450-ish range. Go check with your insurance agent to get that number. The HOA dues, we're gonna say this is $350 a year for HOA. We're assuming the tenant is paying the utilities on the property. So they're paying the electricity and water and everything. So our share as the landlord's utilities are zero. If you're buying like a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, and you had a common area where you were paying some of the utilities, you'd put that in here. Or if you were paying the utilities on a property and then billing back, you might increase the income on the property and then put in some utilities here. But in this case, the tenant is going to put them in their name and we're not going to be responsible for any of them. Some people would prefer... You know, they're going to say, look, uh, when the property is vacant, I'm paying the utilities. I'm going to put a small number in here. I'm going to put you know, whatever it is, $20 a month or you know, $240 a year in order to account for that really small amount of time that I've got the property and I'm responsible for utilities. I don't usually do that. I usually include that as part of the vacancy percentage, but it's up to you as to whether you prefer to do it that way or not then if you have any other expenses on the property, if you had snow removal, or if you're offering lawn service or stuff like that, you'd put those here at other expenses. Now, maintenance. Let's talk about maintenance because this is one of the interesting things that's different when we're talking about analyzing a brand new construction property. So if you remember uh, from before, I have a a separate spreadsheet here. Let's see here. Can I do this? Let me
0: do something here. I'm going to stop sharing my screen for a second and pull up another spreadsheet okay and share my screen again
1: okay so if you remember in a previous class i went over this capex and maintenance estimator for rental property calculator and this is the advanced version there's a really simple version where you just kind of put in all the numbers for the cost for all the different things you've got in here um, and then how frequently you need to replace those things so you can go ahead and adjust Whatever you want to do, you know if roofs are not twelve thousand dollars where you are, if they're you know fourteen thousand dollars on a property you have there, and then uh, you know the frequency of, rep- of replacement is you now these last twenty four years in your marketplace, you can adjust all these numbers and you can see kind of like what they end up being, uh, and that's even in the basic calculator. The one of the differences in, in the advanced one is the advanced maintenance and capex estimator for rental property allows us to put in the age of these things when they start. And the reason why we want to do this is, imagine for a minute you're buying a property, and you're buying a property that's about 15 years old, and it has the original roof. Well, you know that you have a $12,000 expense coming up, and usually roofs last about 20 years, but you're already 15 years into the life cycle. So you now know that you have a $12,000 expense coming up, not 20 years in the future, but because the roof is already 15 years old, you know that it's coming up in five years. So we'd have to put in the age at the start for that roof as 15 years old. Now what we need to do is we need to save up in our maintenance budget $12,000 over five years because we know that we have a roof coming. Right? And so this new the new spreadsheet, it's not new, it's like a year old at this point. Um, I think I did it in... I don't know, early of 2022 is when I built this brand new spreadsheet. But basically, it allows you to go in here and say, you know, here's all the different things I have for maintenance. You can add in a bunch of extra ones if you have additional things on your own property. Um, And then you put in what the cost is in today's dollars. And then I automatically adjust for inflation for you. So we know that, you know, if you're planning for a roof and you're saying it's $12,000 today, well, I can tell you for for certain that in 20 years from now, a $12,000 roof today is not $12,000. So, if you think you're just saving for $12,000 20 years into the future, you would be incorrect about that. You need to say that $12,000 increasing at whatever the inflation rate is, you know, three, four, five, six percent, seven percent, whatever you think inflation is going to be, you need to be saving that amount of money and that that's coming in 20 years. So, you put in all these different ones in today's dollars, you put in how long that they last for, what their average lifespan is and frequency in years, like how often do you have to replace them. And then you put in how old each one is and it will read you all the calculations for you. So why, why do I tell you this? I'm telling you this because with a new construction property, all of the age at the start is zero. So something magical happens where normally we would have um, you know things coming due within a year or two or three or four or five and things could happen all over the place. When you buy a new construction property, you have this magical period where you are very you're very unlikely to have any major capex or maintenance type significant maintenance type expenses on a property in the first, let's call it five years or so, whatever the time period is for kind of doing these frequency of replacements. So you have this sort of like, I don't know, like soft period where you really don't have anything coming up there. So if you wanted to be more aggressive in your deal analysis, you could choose to lower the amounts you are setting aside for maintenance in the first five years, have it steadily increase over the first five years, and then be at full capacity after the five-year point, knowing that you're gonna have regular maintenance probably happening closer to then. The reason you could think about this is if you bought a hundred new construction properties all at the same time, and you had all the numbers for the 100 of them, you are less likely to have maintenance in that first year because almost all of them are new. Are you going to have some maintenance? Is something going to break? Sure. Is it usually going to be covered by the home warranty uh, given by the builder? Yeah. In most cases, it probably will. Are there some things that will not be covered? You know, Damage done by the tenant where you can't prove that they actually did something, and the builder is unwilling to cover it, and the tenant doesn't think it's their fault. Are you going to cover that? Yes, no doubt you are going to be responsible for that. Okay. So, in those cases, you could think to yourself, I'm going to have these really small maintenance numbers for year one, maybe a little bit more in year two as certain things are more likely to break then and you know, you're getting a further away from maybe the builder warranty doesn't cover things into that year two. And then you kind of like see this build up over time. So if you think about it, if you had a hundred properties, the chance of you having maintenance in all hundred of them is like very close to zero in year one. It's probably a little bit higher in year two, a little bit higher in year three. You know, by the time you're getting to year five or so, it's probably at its full on capacity where you probably have a regular ongoing maintenance, just like you would with any resale property. Why do I go through this whole story to tell you this? The reason why is, let's stop sharing my screen for a second, switch back to the other spreadsheet. Uh, Let's see here, other spreadsheet.
0: The reason why I
1: tell you all this, share screen again, um, is because some people will choose to take advantage of this in their deal analysis. They will choose to go to the override section, And I'm not suggesting you necessarily do this, although it is reality. Um, I, I think when we did another class before on CapEx, we had another investor run through their whole entire portfolio, which consisted of a bunch of new construction properties. And we showed that this is a real phenomenon, that this like lower capital expense number for new construction properties is a real thing. So you could go down here. Let's see here. Where's maintenance? Maintenance. Maintenance percent. So instead of having 10% every year for the first five years, we basically could go in and say, look, in the first year, maintenance is going to be 2%. In the second year, it's going to be 4%. In the third year, it's going to be 6%. In the fourth year, it's going to be 8%. And then from then on out, it's going to be 10%. And so we could go ahead and manually override maintenance in the early on years going all the way through. So now when we go and look at deal analysis, the cash flow has actually improved significantly, especially in year one, because we have this lower maintenance number. And so that's what's going on. Even though we have 10% here, we overrode, we overrode the number here and the overrides and do this. This is another reason, a gentle reminder as to why you should always, always, always start with the fresh copy of the spreadsheet and try not to use one that you used to analyze deals previously. Make your own template save a copy, and then before you go and start analyzing a deal, make a copy of the original so that you don't go and accidentally start analyzing deals where you had left this in here and you didn't realize that you left it in here. And now the deal looks amazing on any deal you analyze because you have this maintenance percentage sitting there, okay? So that's what we could do on this property. And I'll leave it there for now just so you can see what's gonna happen here. Um, But we can go change it back if you want to later. All right, I'm also assuming that you're self-managing the property the land value is worth fifteen percent of the original purchase price. It's a residential property, and the effective income tax rate for you for calculating cash flow from depreciation is twenty. So when you look at this deal, buying it with twenty percent down for new construction, it doesn't look horrible with our current market conditions right now. Now in your market, you may be thinking, I don't buy anything if it only has twenty two dollars a month cash flow. Putting twenty percent down, James, you're talking crazy. Sure, if that's your marketplace. You know what is is available in your marketplace. What I'm telling you is use the best deal you've got in your market, and they analyze it that way. In this case, in our marketplace, $22 putting 20% down is actually probably a pretty decent deal, especially for a new construction property. Okay, So you can see what these numbers are, and then you can see what the overall returns are in dollars from appreciation, from cash flow, from debt pay down, from the uh, cash flow from depreciation, the total amount. And then we could see if we had to have six months of reserves set aside, this is what the total amount would be, including the return on the reserves. And then this is the total dollar amount and return in dollars for all four of those things, plus the return in reserves, if we set aside 12 months of reserves. And then this is the return on investment, your ROI for each one of these. We could show you the cash on cash return here, or the cash on cash return is actually all of these as well. It's the same number. And so you can see how it is overall. And you can see what the overall return would be if you sold the property after a certain number of years. Uh, you can look at the annualized return investment, the compound return investment, or the internal rate of return if you're a type of an IRR type of calculation for them. Okay, I'm not going to cover return on true net equity or you know, the cost to access equity or all that other stuff. It's all on here. We're going to cover that in future classes, but you should be looking at those in my opinion. All right, now, I'm going to now go and talk about buying this property as a nomad, and I'm going to show you what happens if you use the builder's three two one buy-down type of dealio and how to do that, okay? So there's a loan program right now where the builders are allowing you to, um, s- sellers are, I mean, sellers can pay for this as well, but the seller or the builder is paying for a fee in order to give you preferential financing with their lender. And they have, and you can probably get this from other lenders if you're willing to pay for it as well. But I'm using it in the context of the story that the builder is providing this as a perk for you to buy the property. And so they're paying a fee in order for you to get a exceptionally low interest rate in year one, a little bit worse in year two, a little bit worse in year three, and then finally, the full-on regular interest rate in year four. So I'm going to switch this over now, and we're going to go to a Nomad property. So we're putting 5% down in this case, still the same rent-ready cost. We're still paying all that extra stuff in order to have the builder... um, roll the things into the loan there. Uh, we now have much more significant negative cash flow, although that's going to change a little bit here in a second. Uh, we're now going to go to 6.875%, which is the rate you can get if you just got the loan straight up yourself. Uh, private mortgage insurance, we'll call that uh, you know 0.4 or so. Um, PMI drops off at 80% loan value. And so now you have significant negative cash flow on this property, even with that maintenance in effect where we have that lower maintenance because we did the two, four, six, eight, ten 10 maintenance plan over the first five years. Even with all that in place, we have this pretty significant negative cash flow on a property. Now, if we came in here, and I think in the last class, we, we increased the closing cost to 4%. We bought down the rate to 5.625. And now cash flow is a little bit more reasonable at negative 177 a month when you add that to the cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits you get by owning the property, actually the true cash flow, including the cash flow and the tax benefits, is $45 a month positive. So when you do that, if we were going to go buy down this rate, you could do that. The negative cash flow is significantly lower when we do that. And so it doesn't look as bad. So try to remember this as like, you know, 177, negative 177 is what the cash flow is, because we're going to do a different version of this. So instead of doing that where we bought down the rate using three points, in order to get the rate now. Now what we're going to say is this. We're going to have the builder provide as a perk this special buy-down loan. And the special buy-down loan is going to be 3.875, but only in the first year. Only in the
0: first year. After this, we need to go change
1: the interest rate. Let's see here. Mortgage interest rate. So it's 3.875 in the first year. It's 4.875 in the second year. It is 5.875 in the third year. And in the fourth year, it goes up to the full 6.875 and it stays that way for the remainder. Okay. So now we could see that this was a three, two, one buy down. So three points, two points, one point, and then basically it goes to the full rate. And you could see what that is. And we did that by going into the overrides tab and overriding the loan. Now when we go back here. It changes everything. But realize it's a little bit deceptive because even though now it's showing that we have this $254 in positive cash flow, realize that is only a year one thing. And by year two, our cash flow is not $254 a month positive. It's actually cash flow in year two, it's $26 positive because the interest rate went up in year two. And so now our cash flow went from being pretty significantly positive, $254 a month. Now it's only $26 a month positive in year two because the interest rates went up in year two. And by year three, the monthly cash flow is negative 216. In year four, it's negative 472. And then it gets a little bit better until we get to be positive here around year 10, okay? Because it went back up to the normal interest rate. So the, the cumulative negative cash flow that we have is about this, Nineteen thousand one hundred thirty six dollars. Okay, so you can see that the cumulative cash flow is nineteen one thirty six. Whereas, if we had done the alternative plan, if we had paid down the rate here and we had just gotten five point six two five, it would have been twenty one thousand two hundred fifty six. Okay, so it's a little bit less by doing it the three two one method. And in that first year, you have less negative cash flow. There's a chance. That you, you can't rely on this, but there's a chance that interest rates will come down in the next year or two or three, and you'll be able to pay some money. You'll have to pay for the refinance, but you'll be able to pay some money and actually get out of that loan. Now, should you rely on that? I don't think so. Because while interest rates are higher than they were in the last couple of years, What we saw a few years ago was exceptional. It was not the norm. And to think that we are going to return to the exceptional is not a guaranteed thing. It's possible. It's possible we could see interest rates drop from where we are here. But who knows? You know, 7% interest rates are about the middle of where we normally have been historically. If we look at like, if we add up all the times that interest rates were at about you know below seven percent, and all the times that they were above seven percent, you know, look at like on a time measurement, like how frequently this happens. I think the seven percent rate is about halfway. Half the time it was more expensive,ness half the time it was less. Okay, not like you know what's the extreme we've seen, which is probably close to twenty percent, you know eighteen, you know up in there, um, and the low we've seen, you know probably like really like twos-ish, you know, mid to, I think I have 2.25 on one of my mortgages. So you have this like wide range of stuff. I'm not showing you like what the middle of the range is, take the high and take the low and divide by two. I'm saying like, if you look at time and how long we've been at certain interest rates, you know, we've been higher about half the time. and We've been lower about half the time. So 7% is not an extreme high. And I'm just trying to give you some perspective as to whether it's likely you're, you're likely to see interest rates go back down. Definitely possible. Definitely possible. But it's also possible interest rates will go up from here and you will not want to refi. And so voluntarily taking, you know, 6.875 for subsequent years, you know, four, year, year four and beyond doing it this way may or may not be the best strategy for you depending on how long you plan to hold the property. And you can see this impact right here in this cash on cash. You know, in the first year, cash on cash looks amazing. In the second year, it looks less than amazing, right? Because you're back down to the higher interest rate. And then it's negative and then it's negative, but then it starts to recover as the cash flow tends to improve on the property. So this shows you just the first five years as a quick visual, all right? So I think I covered what I wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about the idea that in a lot of cases, you're gonna be adding to the price because you're gonna need to add things to the purchase price. I wanted to talk about um, the idea of this three-two-one buy down and how that sort of compares in some ways to some of the other things we've looked at. And I wanted to talk about how the maintenance thing could work on properties if you want to be less conservative. If you want to be more conservative, let's go back and just change those overrides back and let's just see what it looks like.
0: Let's see, where was my maintenance override? There we go. So I'm just going to delete these. So Now we're at 10% for the whole thing. Yeah, so now cash flow in year one is only
1: $37. But you only put 5% down. You know? And the, the cumulative negative cash flow is now at $22,000 overall. where I think before we got 19, if I remember correctly. So it did change some stuff. but your overall return on investment, this is, the, this is the version where you lie at the cocktail parties, right? This is one where we're not taking into account reserves the return on investment quadrant, ignoring reserves, is 45%. If we take into account that you really should set aside six months of reserves in order to make this investment, it's really 34.91%. So is 34.91% a good deal return on your initial investment in the first year? I don't know. Seems pretty good to me. 30.90% still seems pretty good, right? That's if you put 12 months of reserves. Now realize these numbers do change because the interest rate's changing. So it's a little bit more complicated when you do these three, two, one buy downs because you can't just look at the first deal, right? You got to go look at like what's happening here. So if we start looking at return on equity, it's after the first year, it doesn't really matter what you put into the deal. Really, we're more concerned about what's the return we're earning on equity. You can see that those are decreasing over time pretty rapidly, okay? Which is expected. We normally see that when we look at the return on equity calculations like over here. Okay? It's just a little bit more abrupt, and the cash flow goes much more negative because the interest rates are changing. Uh, they're different than what they were in the first year. It's not a smooth curve. All right, so that's all I got. Unless we have any questions, I'm going to end the uh, webinar here. Hope you guys have enjoyed the deal analysis. Now, where we've gone over how to analyze buying a new construction property. I am off for about the next week. Um, I think I have resume back up next Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember which. So if you if I go dark on everybody. That's what's going on. Have a great day and weekend, everybody. This has been James Orr. Bye-bye for now.
0: With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Charlotte is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals.